spirituality? And man, I, I, want, I wanted to say no. I really wanted to say no, but it was like I, I said yes. I said yes, I think it could be. And that was a turning point for me. And it was around that time where it was really kind of organic, where in my prayers, I just would have these questions pop in my head about Jesus. It was like, I wonder what it would be like to sit, to sit next to him. I wonder what it would be like to ask him a question. And, you know, those thoughts started coming in my head, and I'm praying to Jesus Christ now. I'm reading the Bible. I'm reading the Bible. I remember just, I held my hands up and I said, Lord, I'm yours. I remember I asked him to be my savior in that truck, in the northbound lane on the I-95. That day I asked him to be my savior. And it changed everything for me. I, I no longer felt like I was at the back of the line. I no longer felt like I was this um, undeserving person that was never going to be enlightened by anything. I felt like I joined the human race, like I was... I looked at my fellow Christians and realized that they're fallen too. And they've got just as much work to do on themselves as I do. And they've got the Lord. And I wanted to understand that more. Well, that's my story, and thank you for listening. Good morning, Cornerstone people. So great to see you all. How are you today? Everybody good? I was good. Good. Better than the first hour. So what a story, huh? It's amazing. Joe and his wife, Beth, are part of our church. I spoke to him in between services. He's serving in kids' ministry right now. And by the way, that was a very, very edited short version of his story. Watch your email inboxes this afternoon. If you're connected to us via email, you'll get a 12-plus minute version of that mailed to you this afternoon. Watch it. You'll enjoy it. It'll be edifying. And uh, I'm going to use that as a segue, Joe's story, into the card that you find in your chair today, the Who's Your One card. This is just a little tool we use, and um, we pray the Lord will use it so that more Joes and more Beths and more everybody will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So here's how we use it. There's a little blank line in where you've got somebody, you've got a Joe in your life, with or without the alcohol part, but they need the Savior. We're encouraging you to write that name right in there and keep this where you see it every day and do three things. Pray for them, serve them, and invite them. Invite them to something that'll get them closer to the gospel, to God, to Jesus Christ, to the word of God, etc. So um, please take a card, put a name in there, start praying for somebody, and let's see if maybe many people will be coming to Christ and getting baptized and following him. That is our desire. So we're going to pray in just a minute, but first I want to read some scripture. We're in Ephesians chapter 3, continuing our series in chapter 3. It's got a few more weeks left in it, by the way. Then we're going to start, you know what's coming, right? We're going to start an all-new series called, that's the one, Ephesians chapter 4. It'll have new artwork and everything. So it'll feel so different being in Ephesians chapter 4. But uh, we're in Ephesians 3, and I'm going to read Paul's prayer. He finishes out the chapter with a glorious prayer. So I'll read and you follow, please. For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you 
being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the, the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the, the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us to this place and in this time and exposing us to this portion of your holy word today. We pray that the part we look at, that it would speak very deeply into our souls. We pray that some might be led to believe on the Lord Jesus today and find salvation in his name. And that, other, that others who are followers of Christ, well, that you would move powerfully in our hearts to make us stronger, more faithful believers in the Lord Jesus. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let me review last week. So last week, we started off in this prayer, and we noticed first that Paul prays. The point there was, so we ought to all pray. Then we noticed that Paul prays in response to theology. He starts his prayer off, for this reason. What reason? All the theology it just gave you leads me to pray about these things. Theology leads to doxology. Theology leads to praise to God and to prayer. Then we saw thirdly that Paul prays to the archetypal father. He says he's the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Then we saw that Paul prays to align his will with God. He says, I bow my knees when I pray. I'm aligning my will with the fathers. Then we saw that Paul prays that we'd be strong Christians. And now today, we're going to spend the whole time in this sermon on this. Paul prays that we'd have Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. So let me show you the verse again. It's Ephesians 3:17a. We're only looking at an A today, all right? So here it is. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now here's the first thing I want to do with that. You look at that, you say, Christ dwelling in my heart. Wait a minute. I thought it was the Holy Spirit who comes into me. Like I remember in John chapter 14 and over in John 16, there's some more of this. I remember where Jesus said to his disciples, hey, I'm, I'm going to leave you. I must go up to the Father and I'll send the Holy Spirit. He's now with you, but he shall be in you. And it's better for you, he says, that I go away because then you'll have the Holy Spirit. Better to have Jesus in heaven and the Holy Spirit come down than Jesus be down here with you. So I, I remember that and I thought it was the Holy Spirit who's going to come down and be in me not just with me. But here Paul prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So what I want to know is, uh, wait a minute, all right, who's in me? Somebody please tell me who's in there? Who's in my heart? Is it the Holy Spirit or is it Jesus Christ? Is it the second or the third person of the Holy Trinity? And it, whichever of them it is, what about the first person of the Trinity? That's what we're dealing with now. So here's how we're going to start to deal with that. Is the Holy Spirit in believers? Yes. You all knew that, right? 
The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in believers. Three quick references for that. Let's look at an Old Testament reference. It's in Ezekiel 36. God is telling us through the pen of Ezekiel that in the days of the new covenant, in the days after Jesus comes, offers himself a sacrifice, rises on the third day, ascends to the right hand of the Father, pours out the Holy Spirit. Here's what will happen in those new covenant days, and we are in those days, Ezekiel 36, 27. I will put my spirit within you. What will happen when you have the spirit of God within you? and cause you to walk in my statutes. Now I wanna add parenthetically, not perfectly, not, not unfalteringly, not without much repentance and going back to Christ for fresh grace, but he does make changes in your life, right? I mean, you can't become a new creature in Christ and have the Spirit of God dwell in you and it does nothing to you. Nothing changes about you, can't be. So. I'm gonna put my spirit in you, and what will that do? It will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So that's God in the old covenant, looking at new covenant days, saying, here's one of the, the deciding differences between old covenant and new. Everybody who's in the new covenant is saved. They will all have my spirit within them. So yeah, the Bible's real clear. If you're a follower of Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, and he's causing things in you. He's making you careful to observe Christ's ordinance. You care about that because of the Spirit's ministry within you. So yes, you have the Holy Spirit in you. Let's look at another verse, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know, so let's know, that you, and the you here is singular, a couple chapters later he says this again with a plural you, the church collectively is this, but you were also individually this. Do you not know that you individually are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. So if you're in Christ, you're a follower of Christ, you have become a building, you're a temple. Picture Solomon's temple, you've seen pictures of it. Picture the, the temple that was there at the time of Jesus, Herod's temple, you've seen pictures of it. And God no longer dwells in temples made with hands, he dwells in redeemed humans. And so you are a temple. Well, who's in there? The Spirit of God dwells in you. So know this about yourself. It's not just me anymore. It's not just Steve here anymore. It's Steve and the Spirit of God has taken up residence and dwells within me to cause me to do things, to incline me to do or not do things. A third reference about the Spirit of God being in you, Romans 8, 9. However, writes Paul, you are not in the flesh. That's as you came out of your mother's womb, apart from Christ. You are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. You were in the flesh, and God moved you out of in the flesh and put you into in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So you're not a believer, you're not saved, you're not redeemed by the grace of Christ unless you have, unless you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, abiding in you. 
So nothing could be more clear who's in there. I want to know who's in there because Paul prays that Christ would dwell in my heart, but I thought it's the Holy Spirit who's in me. Is the Holy Spirit in Yes, let's make it very clear. The Bible says if you're a redeemed, saved, believer, child of God, you have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, dwelling in you. You are a temple. You're a temple. There ought to be a T-shirt in that. Don't touch this temple. I don't know. What what could that be? You're a temple. The Spirit of God dwells in you. But here, Paul prays. Let's see the verse again, please. Slide, man. Here, Paul prays that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. So is he in there also? Is it not just the Spirit, but is Jesus in there also? And the answer of Scripture is clearly yes. If you're a believer, God the Son also indwells you. Now, let me give you some scriptures for that. And some of you might be surprised at that. So I'm going to give you a number of scriptures about this and make it very, very, very clear that we're not mistaking this, all right? So let's start Romans 8. We just read Romans 8, 9. Let's read 9 again, but then go on to 10. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But... If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So like in the same breath, in just about the same sentence, he says, the spirit is in you, the spirit dwells in you, and Christ is in you. Well, which is it? Both. So yes, you have the Holy Spirit in you, and yes, you also have Jesus Christ in you. So just think about that. The third person of the Holy Trinity is in me. Takes up residence. I'm a temple. He dwells in me. And the second person of the Holy Trinity is in me. I'm a temple. He dwells in me. That's amazing. That's powerful stuff. Let's see more about Christ in us. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves, pardon me, to see whether you are in the faith. We know there's the possibility that you might be deceived there is the possibility you might have believed, but believed in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 1, 2, somewhere right around there. We know it's possible that you might have believed, but you only have like demon faith. The demons also believe in it. They at least tremble. You're not even trembling, but you think you're a believer, but you're not. So you're an intellectual assenting believer. You're not a saved God has my soul believer. And Paul knows those exist. So he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, and then this. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Don't you know this, he says? And he doesn't say the Spirit of God is in you. He says that elsewhere. But here he says, don't you know Jesus Christ is in you? So if you're a believer, if you're redeemed, if you're born again, you have the Spirit of God in you, but you also have Jesus Christ in you. You're a holy place. He dwells in you. Let's look again at Galatians 2.20. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. If you're a believer, Jesus Christ 
also lives in you, in addition to the Holy Spirit. One more reference on this, Colossians 1.27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. To have Christ in you is to have hope of glory. To have Christ in you is to have hope of heaven. To have Christ in you is to have hope of the final resurrection and your final fullness of redemption. So what have we seen so far? If you're a believer, yes, God the Holy Spirit dwells within you. He takes up residency. You're a house. He moves in the house. He lives there now. And at the same time, God the Son also dwells within you, takes up residency. You're a house. He's moved in the house. I'm a house. I'm a temple. And the Son of God and the Spirit of God both dwell within me. And when they're there, they do things. They cause things to happen. They incline your heart to some things and away from other things. There's always effect of having the Spirit of God live in you. So, the, the Son of God, the Spirit of God are in believers. Well, what about the Father? Are there any verses that tell us that the Father is in me? Well, yes, there are. I just happen to have two of them handy right here. So let's look at one, and I'll just read the other one for you because it's not up there. Here's the first one, 1 John 4.12. And John says, no one has ever seen God. So we know we're talking about uh, God the Father. We have seen God the Son but no one has seen the Father. He doesn't have parts. He doesn't have a body. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God, the one we haven't seen, abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So ordinarily when the Scripture just refers to God and doesn't say the Son of God or the Spirit of God, just God, it's referring to the Father, God the Father. John is teaching us here that if we're believers, God the Father abides in us. If we confess Jesus as the Son of God, God the Father abides in us and we abide in God. Is, really, is there any, anywhere else that teaches that the Father is also in me? Yes, I don't have this reference for you because it occurred to me this morning, too late for a slide. John 14, 23, our Lord said to his disciples, if a man love me, he will keep my words and my Father will love him and will come unto him and we will come unto him and we will make our abode with him. So Jesus, God the Son, says of God the Father, the Father and I, we will come to you and dwell in you. We will come to you and make our abode in you, John 14, 23. So what have we seen? Paul prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I thought it's the Spirit who dwells in me. Well, it is. In fact, in the pages of the New Testament, the emphasis is on it being the Holy Spirit who is in us. And there's a reason for that. It's because, as you've heard before, let me step aside. It's because it's the Father who primarily plans everything that will happen. It's the Son who exclusively procures what's happening that will be given to believers, redemption, forgiveness of sins. And it's the Spirit who, somebody gave me this word in between services. I didn't have a P and they gave me a word that might work, who proliferates. Well, maybe, that might work. It's the Spirit who delivers. It's the Spirit who applies. 
It's the spirit that regenerates you. It's the spirit that baptizes you as a member into the body of Christ. It's the spirit who gives you gifts for service. It's the spirit who empowers you to resist temptation. It's the Holy Spirit who's applying everything Christ purchased for you according to the plan of God. So the, the, the emphasis in the pages of the New Testament is it's the spirit who's in you. He's the one doing all the work, applying, but Christ is also in you. And God the Father is also in you. You are a walking, living temple of the Holy Trinity. Now you just think about that a little bit. That's mind-boggling. Look in the mirror. I see a temple of the living God. I see a, a house in which the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit dwell and you know it has to be this way because, well, let's see. Is the Father omnipresent? Yeah, I'm pretty sure of that. Is the Son omnipresent? Eh, I'm pretty sure of that. Is the Spirit omnipresent? Pretty sure of that. So anywhere the Father is, the Son is. And anywhere the Son is, the Spirit is. And you can't get around that. Fortunately, way back in church history, the early Christians wrestled with this. Is the Father everywhere that the Son is? So if the Son is in me, is the Father also in me? And they answered in the, in the, in the 900s, uh, I'm sorry, in the 700s, yes. And they came up with this word. Let me show you the Greek version and the English one beside it. It's perichoresis. Perichoresis, which means going around, rotation. What that means is you can't have the Father here, but the Son isn't there. Wherever the Father is, the Son is there. And wherever the Spirit is, the Father and the Son are there. And there's this perichoresis. There's this going around. There's this rotation. It was John of Damascus in 741 who came up with this idea to help explain the mystery of the Trinity. In our day, we don't use that term so much, but the theologians use the term, there's an interpenetration, meaning over here you have the Father, but that doesn't mean the Son's not there because they're in each other. And where the Father is, the Son is. And where the Son is, the Spirit is. Jesus taught us this. Let me give it to you. In John 14, 11, he says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. So wherever the Father is, the Son is in him. And wherever the Son is, the Father is in him. So if the Son is in you, so is the Father. So if the Holy Spirit's in you, so is the Son. They're all in the same place all the time. Again, John 17, 21, Jesus prays to the Father, Father, I'm praying that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, there's that inner penetration, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The Father is in this. Wherever the Son is, the Father's there too. Again, in John 14, 9, Philip says to Jesus, um, I, I just have one little beanie request for you. It's nothing big. You should be able to handle this. Uh, my request is, uh, could you show us the Father? That's all. Just, just show us God, the Father. And Jesus answers and said to him, have I been with you so long? And still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say Show us the Father. Well, I thought he's the Son, not the Father. Well, he is the Son, not the Father. They are different members of the Trinity, but wherever the Son is, there's also the Father and there's also the Holy Spirit. 
So there's this mutual indwelling, there's this interpenetration, there's this perichoresis, this going around. So let's make it simple. What are we talking about here? Paul prays that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And you're like, I thought it was the Holy Spirit, oops, who dwells in me through faith. Somebody's going to tell me about that this week. I thought it was the Holy Spirit who dwells in me through faith. Who is it? Can you tell me, please, who's in there? Yes, it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You are a house, a temple, in which all three members of the Trinity dwell. So again, you just think about that. Just think about what that means. If you're a believer, God lives in you. You're not a believer, and you think, well, what would happen if I become a Christian? Does anything change? What would it do to me? Well, actually, yes, everything changes. Because God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit can hardly come to dwell inside of you, and it doesn't make any changes. So all three members of the Trinity are in there, but Paul prays that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. All right, here's the second thing we want to deal with. First thing was, who's in there? It's all three. Here's the second thing we want to deal with. Paul prays that Christ would dwell in the Ephesians' hearts. But wait a minute. He's identified them over and over and over and over already as saved, as believers. He's not questioning their salvation. He says in verse after verse, let's just pick up a few um, chapter 1, I don't have these verses up here for you. He starts off 1-1, one, one. Paul, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. They're saints, they're faithful. And then he says shortly after that, they are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And then they're chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And then they're predestined unto adoption and on and on and on. Everything you see, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, down to this prayer, these people are believers, they're followers of the lamb, they're the real deal. Why then is Paul praying that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith? I thought you just showed us that if they're real believers, Christ already dwells in her. What's Paul praying this for? Do you see the problem? You following me on that? All right. So the answer is simple. The answer is going to get us into a little bit more Greek. So those of you who love it, smile. And those of you who hate it, just endure. All right. But here comes a little more Greek. The answer lies in the Greek word Paul uses here for dwell. So let me tell, show you a couple Greek words. Here's the first one. It's oikeo. There it is on your left, it's put in English, transliterated to English. On the right, that's what it looks like in Greek, oikeo, comes from the noun oikos, which is house. And so the verb is to dwell in a house. So you buy a house and you move in, and now you dwell in the house. That's what this verb is about. Oikeo means to take up residency in a house. And Paul uses that word many, 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 many times of the Spirit dwelling in you or the Son dwelling in you in the New Testament. But this time, and this time only, he puts on the front of it an intensifying preposition, kat oikeo. What's the cat? It's actually, it's kata, but when you join them together, there's this thing called elision and you drop out the A because euphonically it doesn't sound good. You follow all that? You don't care. It doesn't matter. Just had to explain that for the one of you who wanted to know. All right, see, told you. So, so it's cat oike. What's the intensifying preposition cat do? It, it's not shown in our English versions. It's a pity. 
It does the same thing, I've told you this before, it does the same thing that we do when we put up on the end of the phrase, I ate it. So there's, I ate it, that means, okay, you ate it. Maybe you stirred it for a while because you weren't into it, you weren't too excited about it, tried to make it go away. Do I really have to eat this? Yes, eat it, and you ate it. Or if you say, I ate it up, what does that mean? That means you really ate it. You consumed it. You stuffed it. It went right to, you were like, mm, give me some more of this. That's what intensifying prepositions do when you add them to verbs. Now, Paul does that. He takes oikeo to dwell, and he says, I want Christ, I'm praying that Christ would really dwell in you through faith, that he would completely, deeply, I'm praying that you would have a powerful presence of Jesus Christ in your soul. You get it? So this is why he's praying for believers that they would have Christ to dwell. It's not just that Christ would dwell. He already dwells. It's that Christ would really take up residency in you that he would take possession of every room, every closet, every nook, every cranny. There'd be no little secret room where you're like, well, but don't go in there, Lord. That's my room. I'm, I'm hanging on to that room. Don't, I don't want you to look in there. No, there's no room like that. By the way, that, that occurred to me because there's a little pamphlet. It's like four or five pages. You can look it up on the web and read it easily. Uh, Robert Munger, M-U-N-G-E-R, Robert Munger in the 1950s wrote a little thing called My Heart, Christ's Home, taken from our verse. And he likens you to a house, and in the house there's a library, and that's your brain where the thinking occurs. And he talks about Christ having possession of your library. And he goes through the house, your dining room, that's where your appetites are, Christ having possession of your appetites. And eventually he gets to the hall closet. Let me read you that part of Mr. Munger's little thing, My Heart, Christ's Home, the hall closet. One day I got up and I found the Savior waiting for me, and there was an arresting look in his eye. And he said to me, there is a peculiar odor in the house. There is something dead around here. It's upstairs. I think it is in the hall closet. And as soon as he said hall closet, I knew what he was talking about. Yes, there's a small closet up there on the landing, just a few square feet. And in that closet behind lock and key, I had one or two little personal things that I did not want anyone to know about. And certainly I did not want Christ to know about. I knew they were dead and rotting things left over from my former life, and yet I loved them. And I wanted them so for myself that I was afraid to admit they were there. Reluctantly, I went up there with him, and as we mounted the stairs, the odor became stronger and stronger. He pointed at the door, and he said, it's in there, some dead thing. And then they go on and they deal with that dead thing, and the final part of the, the thing about your house is, is titled, the final section is titled, Transferring the Title. And that's where by the end of the little thing, he's saying, all right, Lord, I'm giving the title to you. You own the home. It's all yours. There's no little closet space I'm keeping for myself, and I want you to move in powerfully. I want your fragrance to come out of every fiber of my being. I want it Christ in me, the hope of glory. So that's why Paul is praying for believers that they would have Christ dwelling. It's really, really dwelling, powerfully dwelling, taking possession of all of you, 
filling you with his presence and his fragrance, moving into every room. Does Christ dwell in you? Well, if you're a believer, he does. He is dwelling in you. How much of you does he have? Are there closets you need to hand the keys over to? Are there things you need to realize you think you're hiding? You're like Adam and Eve in the garden, hiding from God behind trees. Ha! And you think you're keeping something from Christ and you don't want him to see what's in that closet. He knows what's in that closet. So, what have we dealt with so far? Uh, who's in me? It's God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why does it say, why is Paul praying that Christ may dwell in believers' hearts? Because it's kata oikeo. It's really dwell in your hearts. Here's a third thing, and the last two are short, so take heart, all right? Here's a third thing we want to deal with. Notice where he says Christ dwells. He could have just said, so that Christ may dwell in you. Let's see the verse again, please. Slide, ma'am. But instead of that, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. In your hearts. Now, what do we know about our hearts? Well, our hearts are what God is interested in. Biblical Christianity is, is nothing if it's not a religion of the heart. Yes, we're about theology, but we want the theology to grip our hearts. Yes, we're about truth, but we want the truth to grip our hearts. It's all about our hearts. And what is your heart? It's the thing you love with. And it's the thing you hate with. And it's the thing you delight with. It's the thing you desire with. It's the thing you long for. And it could be righteous longing or it could be covetous desires, but it's all in your heart. We lead our way through life from our hearts. Sometimes you hear somebody talk about, well, the primacy of the intellect, like we're these big brains that actually lead everything. No, 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 no. You're very fallen and you're a complex being, but here's how it generally works. Your heart wants something, so your brain works overtime to quickly make a justification for the thing you want. Your brain explains why that's okay in your case. I'm not saying this is always how it happens, but I have a suspicion this is often how it happens when somebody who has been a believer says, you know, I'm having intellectual problems with Christianity. I kinda wanna say to them, yeah, what's her name? Like, what's really going on? There, there's usually a moral desire that's intertwined with, at least, the new intellectual questions of Christianity. It's because I find that I love what's in that closet. I want to justify it. I can't justify it biblically. Hmm, I'm not so sure about the Bible anymore. It really does go like that a lot. I'm not saying somebody can't have pretty pure just intellectual problems. You can be. Our intellects are fallen. But Paul's interested in our heart. He wants Christ to take possession of our heart, the thing we desire with, the thing we love with, the thing we hate with, the thing that leads us and guides us, and our brains follow and clean up the mess and make stories to justify what's going on. Paul wants Christ super-dwelling in your heart. So your ambitions, your loves, your desires look like they're straight from Jesus Christ. Your passions are straight from Jesus Christ. Everything that your heart does for you, not the little pumping thing, you know what I'm talking about. That place from which you lead. 
It needs to look like Jesus Christ. Even your words, what's the Bible say? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if Christ is abundantly dwelling in your heart, then you're gonna wanna talk about him. You're gonna wanna talk about his things. You're gonna wanna talk about his word. You're gonna wanna talk about his kingdom. And it's kind of frustrating when you're with people who aren't believers and don't wanna talk about it anymore, and you can't even talk about the thing that most matters to you above everything on the planet, and we can't even go there. It's hard, right? It's hard. So Paul wants Christ to really dwell in your heart. Does he? Does the Lord Jesus have your passions? Does he guide and direct your desires, your longings, your loves, your hates? Ooh, I used to love that, now I hate it, it's evil. Does the Lord Jesus change change your desires? Are your desires being set apart to him, sanctified, your loves? That's Christ dwelling in your heart. One last thing, very brief, that we want to cover on this, and that is, notice notice he says, there's a means. How do I get this? Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, through faith. In other words, it's a matter of your heart and God. It's not that you can do some outward thing. Well, assign me seven things to do, and I'll do those seven things, and then Christ will dwell in my heart. No, 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 no. It's not that you can do some outward things. It's not get baptized. It's not join the church. It's not help mow the lawn. It's none of that. It's your heart believing God's word, your heart believing the gospel, your heart believing Christ deserves to reign there, and you're presenting that heart to him, it's an act of faith. It's an internal moving of the Spirit of God in your soul. This is what Paul is praying for. So let's, let's sum it up, and then I'll give a few applications. That's not your cue yet, thanks. So Paul prays that Christ may really dwell in your heart through faith. All right, some observations, some closing thoughts. Here's one. Some of you are not believers. Bless you, we love you, we're so glad you're here. The shed blood of Jesus Christ can wash you of all your transgressions. The Spirit of God can regenerate you. He can give you life. You can have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, and it's all free, and all you have to do is repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And oh, oh, will you? Will you, will you, will you please? It will be the best thing you ever do. If you do it with all your heart, you'll never turn back from it. Go ahead, interview believers on their way out of here today and say, would you turn back, would you turn back, would you turn back? And they're all gonna tell you, huh, you kidding? Like what would I give in exchange for my soul? Who else has the words of life? Where else would I find redemption? But if you're not a Christian, you do not yet have Jesus in your heart. Would you open your heart to him? Would you welcome him in? He'll change your loves, your heart. Here's the second thing I want to say by way of closing. Cornerstone Church, come on, by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, let's be Put the verse up again, please, slide man. Thank you. Let's be those kinds of Christians. Let's be like, yes, that verse and how we've understood it today, that's what I want, Lord. 
Let's be that kind of believers. Like, I want Jesus Christ to super abide in my heart through faith. Would you please be that kind of believer? What would it be to have a whole church and every believer in that church is like, man, the passion of my soul is that Christ would possess me, that Christ would dwell in my heart. Oh, do please be that kind of believer. Let's be that kind of church. What would a church be like, I say again, if everybody was like that? And finally, let's be that kind of believer and then take it out into the world. And where you go, you're taking God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit to where they are and 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 to work and to play and to the gym and to everywhere. And you're a little movable temple carrying God to needy people everywhere. Wow, what would that do to our area if all believers saw themselves as little movable temples, a temple that can walk, temples that can go visit other needy Joes and give them a word from God. So I just want to say to you, Christians, look, it bothers me, it bothers me, it really does, preacher problems. It bothers me that I get to preach on this verse today because it's so good. I don't want it to be done. I want to come back and just repeat it next week and maybe repeat it the week after that, maybe repeat it the week after that, and maybe it's starting to get in us then. It's like my fear is, uh-oh, we didn't do this well enough. It didn't go in deep enough. We're going to forget it. Please let God have dealings with your soul about these things. Okay. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray for people in our hearing today who are not yet followers of your son. Oh, do be gracious to them, we pray. Would you send the Holy Spirit of redemption, spirit of conviction, spirit of illumination? Would you send the Holy Spirit into their souls that with a regenerated soul, with opened eyes, they may believe in the Lord Jesus and find life. Father, people in this room right now, would you draw them to Christ, we pray. And many of us you have drawn to Christ. And, and we pray to you, Father, that Christ would super dwell and our hearts through faith. So have every room in us, Lord. Fill us with your fragrance. When our mouth speaks, may it be out of the abundance of a heart filled with Jesus Christ. Would you make us this kind of a church full of people who are like this verse and then bless us to shine much light into our needy world. We pray for all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Rob. Thank you, Pastor Steve. Indeed, may the Lord dwell within our hearts. Now has come time for communion. If you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to this table. If you need to grab elements, they are located in the back. Please help yourself. For reflection today, we turn back to the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 56. 
the question is this. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? And the response is, I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, nor my sinful nature, against which I've struggled all my life, but he will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never come into condemnation. Praise God that we have this gift. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it. He gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink it again from the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Praise God. If you call Cornerstone your home, we would uh, love to just share with you opportunities that you can uh, give. Uh, one of the ways that you can do that is by placing uh, checks or money in the boxes in the back. Another way is by downloading our Tithely app. Through there, you can uh, give to Cornerstone, um, and you can also designate whether or not you would like that to go towards a benevolence offering. Um, I think that is all for me. Justin. Thank you, Pastor Rob. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Justin. I'm the youth pastor here at Cornerstone, and thank you all so much for being here this morning. Uh, it is always a blessing to be able to gather together, worship our Lord, and sit under his word. Amen.